we are up to part three of a four-part series called By Signs and Wonders. And uh, I, Adam, I'm, I agree with you. I'm glad you love it because I'm loving it too. My main um, thinking or source of material that, that sort of got me thinking on this process, I've been sharing this with you, it's come from Dr. Stephen Elliott and his book by the same name, By Signs and Wonders. And I, I just, you know, I want to acknowledge that to you from the start that, um, that a lot of my, my points kind of flow through what I've been reading. Now, there's also another book that's sort of helped me uh, a lot by John Wimper called Power Evangelism, which I also highly recommend to you. I think we've got a, um, a slide with both of those books on the screen there. There's another one there by uh, John Wimber called Power Evangelism, which I'd recommend to you. Now, here's the thing. I don't necessarily agree with everything that's in these books, by the way, but I think their main premise is right. And I've learned a lot from these two gentlemen in particular and from others in this, this area of thought and doctrine. What I mean by that is that it's very easy for us to live in a Christian bubble, right? It is for me because I've been in this church most of my life. And so I do have a bit of a bubble going on here. I don't really know much about what goes on in other parts of the, of the church around the world. We only ever know and experience through the lens of often our own kind of Western, perhaps evangelical tradition, when in reality, there are a lot of Christian traditions and experiences that in all honesty seem to look closer to what we read in the New Testament than what we may sometimes experience. Speaking of which, the third and most important book that's influenced my thinking is the Bible itself in this field, in this area. Because if you read the Bible closely, you can't miss it. You can't deny it. Signs and wonders are all through the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And it is obvious that they are a normal part and a significant part of the life of the Christian church. So the contention of this whole series is that miraculous signs and wonders, they play a role, in fact, a significant role in the spreading of the gospel because that's what we read in the Bible that happened. And the the scripture that we've been basing this whole series on comes from Romans 15, 18 to 19. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my my message. Remember, I've been saying the message, of course, is vital and the most important part. And by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Paul says the Gentiles were convinced of his message, the message that Jesus saves, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and that it was in this way he presented fully the good news of Christ all around that part of the world. And we know he travelled a lot. By the way, if, you, if you've missed the previous two messages on this, you will find them on our website. You can go back and watch or listen to those. In the same way that Paul makes this clear statement in Romans 15, Dr. Eliot's thesis in his book was that there is a distinct lack of fruit from friendship evangelism in the modern church 
and that without the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of signs and wonders, our efforts to reach people with the good news tends to be weaker. He's not saying that our efforts of, through friendship, evangelism, you know, um, reaching out to people is wrong. He's not saying that. He's saying that when we lack the power of the Holy Spirit in these things, the fruit sometimes is sparse. Not wrong, just not as effective. However, when we allow space for the Holy Spirit to do what he does, what he's, he's all about, and for the supernatural and the miraculous, the response to the gospel, history has shown, is significantly higher. The Bible shows that to be true. You can't help but see it when you read the scriptures. History shows it to be true. You know, our own experience shows it to be true. Now, in the last message, we took time to look at miracles in the church throughout history, including in the meetings of many of, our, uh, of the, the church fathers that we, we respect so, uh, so well, we, high, we hold in high regard, including John Wesley. And it seems that all of the people who were used by God to lead thousands into faith in Jesus were instrumental in the big revivals of history. They confirmed in writing that the Holy Spirit's power was observed throughout these times. There were signs and wonders. They didn't worship the miracles. They didn't elevate them above Jesus or his message of salvation, but they were present. They were there. The Holy Spirit moved in that way. When God moves in these ways, it confirms, confirms the truth of the gospel and more people tend to believe and their faith seems to have been even more certain. You know, that. They, they come to faith in Jesus when they encounter God in this way and they, have a, they tend to have a more fired up and stronger faith. And so it, that's been my observation. That all people, even people who have been in the church for many years, they want their walk with the Lord to be just more than words and tradition, right? You know, we, we really want God to be real and he is real. And God, through his love and his grace, confirms it to us in these ways. When God does something special in our life, our faith comes alive. We feel close to him. Who's, who's ever experienced that in their life? When Yeah. I know our faith is grounded on what Jesus has done already on the cross. I know that. That is a, such a significant and important truth that we should never, ever deviate from. I'm not saying miracles are a prerequisite for faith, okay? I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, that our loving, merciful, gracious God does bless us with answers to prayer to support and strengthen our faith and to encourage faith in non-believers. When God answers prayer, our faith comes alive. You know, when the Holy Spirit sets up those divine appointments <laughs> that we know we're not mere coincidences, when doors open all of a sudden, when people we're praying for have a sudden change of heart, when a son or a daughter we've been praying for on our knees before God pleading for them, all of a sudden they show an interest in God again. It might be an answer to prayer for uh, provision in your life. You're needing a house or a new job and you're short of funds and, and God provides. And how often do we think that? Well, it's probably just a coincidence. But God provides 
When God answers and blesses us, our faith is always revived. But it's also when a, a miracle happens, someone is healed. It's also when the Holy Spirit makes something happen that shouldn't have happened in the natural. This miracle happens. It's also when God gives a prophetic word of encouragement or a prophetic, prophetic word of warning that bears out to be true and from God. It can also be when someone is released from demonic stronghold. Sometimes we kind of shy away from saying things like that, but it's all through the Bible. You know, it's, it's real. We don't talk about it very often. Maybe we don't fully understand it or we haven't had a lot of experience with that. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, uncertainty um, about the, and fear of the unknown. I'm talking about demonic strongholds again. But you talk to any Christian from a third world country and their spiritual warfare prayers are a daily practice and things happen that I think we would be a little bit shocked if we saw them happen here. Because we like to think, my God is a God of order. And we don't want to ever see anything that's going to unsettle my sensibilities. (laughs) I'm probably talking a lot about myself. And you know what? God is a God of order, but have you read some of the accounts of what happened to Jesus? <laughs> I mean, two dudes ripped open the roof, okay, and lowered their friend down in the middle of Jesus' sermon, his fr- a friend who couldn't walk, on a mat, stopped the whole proceedings, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't stop or rebuke anyone. He heals the man, he gets up, and he walks away. You know, what about casting demons out of a man into a herd of pigs who run off a cliff today? Could you just picture that for a second? What about, uh, I love this one, what about spitting on the ground, making a little mud cake, (laughs) picking it up, and rubbing it on some poor blind man's eyes and then healing him. Now, I have no intention of doing that. (laughs) But the point is that while it's true God is a God of order, when the Holy Spirit moves in power, there is sometimes an outworking of that power that we are not used to seeing. So maybe, just maybe, our order is different to God's order. Remember, we read... Some of those accounts from Wesley's meetings were people that were so grieved by the state of their their soul before God that they would fall prostrate before him and they would just cry out in anguish and in repentance. Like cries out in services like this one. Like how would we handle that? What if it happened here, church? Because it happened to Wesley, the guy we look up to, you know, it happened in his services. Remember last time I preached, he, he said that all these um, supernatural things just kept happening night after night. He didn't go looking for them. He didn't necessarily um, want to worship those things. It was all about Jesus all the time. But those things happened. You know, I've also shared about a troubled young man at a camp I was at when I was a teenager. You may remember this story. I've shared it before. Um, I remember... I was probably only about grade eight at the time, and this uh, 
guy had come to the camp. He wasn't, he wasn't a regular church attender and he was kind of intimidating to people like me and the way he carried himself and spoke and looked and stuff like that. And towards the end of the week, I just remember uh, it was late at night and a leader just put a hand on him and started praying. He started yelling at the top of his voice for like about a minute, just screaming at the top of his voice. Freaked us all out completely. Never had seen that before. And I don't think he had either. But the next day, he was a different person. He was a different person. Now, I have no idea what happened to him. But you've got to think on reflection. Something was going on in the spirit world. Wesleyan Methodist camp, by the way. (laughs) You're all wiping your kids off the registration list right now. (laughs) Yeah, too late. I haven't seen that happen since, and I've been to dozens. All right? Yeah. I know maybe I'm rambling a little bit here, but I just want you to see that God has always worked in this way in the church, and I believe he still does today if we're open and willing. And that's our focus for today. Are we open and willing to the Holy Spirit and what he does? It's a look at how the movement of the Holy Spirit through the miraculous that we read about in church history is still active today. So I've got four questions today I want us to consider. Number one is this. Does the Holy Spirit have full and free reign in us? I didn't say Father. I didn't say Son. I said Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, aren't they the same? And the answer is actually yes. They are God. Hmm. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about the Trinity, right? And you've got to choose your words carefully. See how we go. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity, not three gods, one God. Three in one. Not three gods in one, three persons in one, God. We believe that here, along with most evangelical, Catholic, and Orthodox denominations in the Trinity, any movement or denomination that doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine that God is three in one, the three distinct yet perfectly united persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, any who don't teach that are teaching a distorted theology of God. Now, here's the thing. Can you find the word Trinity in the Bible? You can't. And yet, the doctrine and the theology of the Trinity is clearly in there. Yes, it's hard to grasp, and there will always be a lot of mystery wrapped up in the theology of Trinity. But that will always be the case when it comes to us and our triune God. Because we cannot comprehend him fully. But the scriptures make it clear. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed. They are divine in nature and are perfectly united as our object of worship. The problem, though, is that Sometimes in our churches, we're very good at worshipping the Father and the Son and only acknowledging the Holy Spirit, and yet the Holy Spirit is God. For some reason, there is often little opportunity or encouragement to actively engage with the third person in the Trinity. And again, I stress, God is three in one, but you must remember that each of them have distinct roles, and that's why we acknowledge all three. I hope you're staying with me here. Jesus said, There is no other way to the Father except through 
me. Jesus has a distinct role, doesn't he? In that three-in-one God. In Jesus, if Jesus is the way of the Father, then what's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's one hint in John 16, 8. It says, and when he, the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. There's just one thing the Holy Spirit does. So if you're unsure how to answer that first question, does the Holy Spirit have free reign in me? My second question might help you answer the first, and it's this. Do we actually make expectant provision for the Holy Spirit's involvement in our life? You know, if you're a Christian, you were born of the Spirit. Just like Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. This is another thing that the Holy Spirit does. It's a completely new way of life in Christ. And the Holy Spirit has done that regeneration work inside of us. So if the Holy Spirit has a distinct role in the Trinity and his role is essentially our rebirth into a new life of Christ, and of course he does other things as well, helping us to live our life, but the Holy Spirit raises us spiritually from the dead, then it appears more and more that the Holy Spirit does have an important and distinct role in us and for us. The Holy Spirit is given an important role in your life as a Christian. So then what you're doing to make room for all of the Holy Spirit's distinct... What are you doing to make room for all of the Holy Spirit's distinct roles in your walk with God? I hope you can see what I'm saying. That may have been complicated. We have to make room for the role of the Father. We have to make room for the role of the Son. The Scriptures are clear and we have to make room for the role of the Holy Spirit in our worship of our triune God and how we live for him. So I'm going to repeat the question now in light of all of that. Do we actually make expected provision for the Holy Spirit's involvement in our life? Do we make expected provision for the Holy Spirit's role in our devotional and prayer life? What about in our small groups? Or in how we do outreach? Or in our worship services. Because if we don't, we're in danger of being more binitarian in our faith than Trinitarian. And we don't want to go there. The Holy Spirit can become the forgotten person of the Trinity and we don't want to do that. The theologian Gordon Fee said this, many churches simply treat the Holy Spirit as a matter of creed and doctrine, but not as a vital, experienced reality in believers' lives. He has been practically excluded from the experience life of the church. I think he means the Western church. Europe, America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Because around the rest of the globe, Christianity is advancing forward at a pace that we could barely imagine here in countries where they can't rely on you know, wealth and resources and things like that, just the Holy Spirit. That's all I got. South Korea, parts of Africa, Mexico, some countries in uh, South America like Chile. It's amazing stuff going on in Chile. Um, we know in China, millions and millions of people are coming to faith in Jesus, even though there's oppression, and persecution going on in a lot of those countries. 
The pastors of, or spiritual leaders, they've pointed to an emphasis of the person and work of the Holy Spirit and have ex, ex, uh, experienced unprecedented growth and conversions. And I've noticed that whenever I meet pastors or Christians from countries that aren't from our neck of the woods, you know, from, uh, from Australia or America, you know, miracles is what they always talk about. It's almost like they would talk about them in the same way we just talk about having a cup of coffee or a game of football. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah, miracles, yeah. Yeah, we had some miracles, you know. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's a completely normal part of their faith. You know, some of the movements that have spread like crazy around the world, um, or at least in the last hundred years or so, they can trace their roots back to the Azusa Street Revival in the 1900s. Who's aware of, of that, of the Azusa Street Revival? This revival was kind of like the birth of the Pentecostal movement. And you know today, as a result of probably that, they reckon half a billion people have come to Christ from that foundation. So maybe they were onto something. Ironically, the pastor that began the revival in Azusa Street, his name was William J. Seymour. He first preached in that area in LA in this um, Nazarene church. No offense to the Nazarenes, they're our brothers, you know. But they kicked him out and locked the doors because he prophesied and he spoke in tongues and they kicked him out. And so he, uh, he borrowed a hall from the Methodists down the road and that's where it began. The Azusa Street began, revival began. There was, by the way, a connection between what happened in Azusa Street and the holiness movement that we we belong to here in the Methodist Church. I hope you realise the Pentecostal movement shares roots with us. The holiness doctrine flows through much of the Pentecostal movement as well. There's alignment in, in many areas. From what I know about this revival that went on for nearly nine years, the Holy Spirit moved in ways we probably wouldn't recognise today. You know, I managed to find this um, YouTube interview. It was done in the 70s, so it's a little bit... Um, you know, the, the production quality is very poor, but they found these two elderly people who were part of the revival in the early, early 1900s and asked them the kind of things that, that went on there. And they described people who were hungry for more of God, um, joyful worship, often very strong conviction for people who were there for the first time in particular, lots of tears, people on their knees, healings and miracles. People were bringing friends who then encountered Jesus, who then brought friends, who encountered Jesus, who brought friends, who encountered Jesus, and it went day and night almost for nine years. There was strong biblical preaching. They even preached on sanctification. And missionaries were sent out around the world. And yes, there was speaking another language. In fact, the lady that was interviewed said they would speak these foreign languages and people would come from other parts of the world and recognize them. They were from Japan or whatever, and they, they knew the language that they were speaking, even though the person speaking it had never learnt the language. If you're sitting there filled with scepticism, read Acts chapter 2 again. <laughs> that stuff happens. When I watched this interview, I was filled with this mixed emotion of wonder, but I've got to admit, uh, yeah, a, a little fear. Fear of the unknown. You know, there's a lot of negative things that are said about Azusa Street. And I'm sure there were things that happened there that weren't from God. But then again, I'm sure that there are things that happen in all churches that aren't from God. But what you can't deny 
is there was a revival that spread across the globe and led millions to salvation in Christ. This was like another Pentecost moment in the history. Signs and wonders were present. People were saved. Here's question three for you today. When the Holy Spirit moves supernaturally, will we trust Jesus or will we give in to doubt or fear? As I said in the first week, it's okay to be sceptical. Remember, Thomas was sceptical. And what did Jesus do? He gave him more proof. He helped him. He was gracious. Skepticism is fine. Running away in fear with a hard heart is not. And Thomas didn't run away with his scepticism or have a hardened heart. He stayed. Look, we all know it's true that some people in churches stir up hype and emotions and they do crazy things, you know, they, and, and they're probably not of the Spirit, but way too often we miss out on what the Spirit is doing in our midst because we're far too consumed with looking for anything that might be just from crazy man, you know, instead of loving God. And we let the fear of that win out. That's my testimony, and I wonder if it's yours. But church, this is why we have elders. They have a job of discerning what we see in here and, that, and they have spiritual authority to say no or stop if need be. In fact, part of that interview I read from Azusa Street, obviously poor old William J. Seymour wasn't down there 24 hours a day when this revival stuff was going on. He would sometimes be upstairs where he lived and they said if he could hear something going on that he thought, that's not God, he would just bang his foot. <laughs> And the leaders would go, oh, oh, stop. (laughs) So if you see me do that, you know, no. Back to my point. Sadly, people see or hear about signs and wonders and respond with fear or scepticism or hardening of heart. That does happen. And like I said, I understand that. I know things can be unnerving or intimidating sometimes. You know, as a pastor, you want to please everybody. (laughs) The very same thing happened to Jesus. You all know the story, I mentioned it before, of the demon-possessed man who was homeless and he lived in the tombs. When Jesus freed him, he sent the demons into the herd of pigs and they went running over the cliff. This is what happened next. It's in Luke chapter 8. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened, and a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away, and leave them alone. For a great wave of fear had swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and he left. Crossing back to the other side of the lake. And the man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him. Jesus said, sent him home saying, Go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. 
In this story, most people let the fear overcome them and sent Jesus away except for the one man who was healed. And he went on and told everyone about Jesus. The sad consequences of fear is we have the potential to reject what the Holy Spirit might be doing. Even though many followed Jesus in his time and they saw his miracles, you know what, even more chose not to. So it's far from a guarantee. There are risks with miracles. But if they were good enough for Jesus and Paul and his disciples to empower the truth of the gospel, like he says in Romans 15, to empower the truth of the gospel to people, then they're good enough for us. I say, we keep our brains engaged, we be wise, we test the spirits, we trust our elders, and most importantly, we trust the Holy Spirit. There's a famous Christian author. His name is John White. He's from the 70s and 80s. He made this following observation about the church. Secret sin abounds in times of spiritual drought. Coldness and formality replace living faith. Ecclesiastical power moves into the vacuum created by the absence of spiritual power. The church grows cold, worldly and sinful, while in the world, inequity and lawlessness grow more and more. So we must pray. At such times as this, God's response has always been to pour out his Holy Spirit on his people. My fourth question as we conclude is this. Will we be a a church that prays and where the Holy Spirit is free to move in power? Now, I know you will all agree with me here. The last thing we want is a church that grows cold like John White said. So, we pray. We invite God to pour out his Holy Spirit. And we invite the Spirit to move powerfully as a fresh wind, as a fresh fire. And I think we should do that now. So would you stand with me? So, Lord, as we see the world around us grow cold, in a sense, I pray that you fire us up, heat us up, Lord, 
Holy Spirit, we acknowledge there may have been times when we um, perhaps quenched you or we didn't have enough trust or maybe we let fear overcome or we've seen, you know, we've seen things and we, and we worry too much. We have nothing to fear from you, Holy Spirit. So we invite you in this church to do what you want to do. Not what we want to do, what you want to do. And the word says that you are powerful and that you live in us and that it's the same power that rose Christ from the grave. We have the power to live holy, sanctified lives. We have the power to pray over people, to be delivered, to be freed, to be healed. And so we invite you, knowing you're already here, we invite you to move powerfully and freely. Please, in my life, in the life of the church, please, Jesus, please, Holy Spirit, we pray now. Help us to be the church that you you want us to be. I suspect it might look different. It might have to change in some ways. But we trust you, Lord. And we want nothing more in our life than to do your will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Here on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. We pray for that together this morning. As your followers. The Holy Spirit, if there's anything in us that, you know, is perhaps in the way, then reveal it, convict us, help us to overcome it, remove it, forgive us, Lord, we pray. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. And that you're preparing a place for us. And we live in and just dwell in that assurance this morning as well. Thank you for setting us free.